So, whenever you study St. Thomas Aquinas, typically, when you talk about how theology or the study of God or just reality is arranged, it's often most helpful to reference the Summa Theologiae, because this was the the particular work that St. Thomas was most deliberate and intentional in his arrangement of. So you're perhaps familiar with the prologue of the Summa Theologiae, where he says that it's for beginners in the study of theology. The idea there, um, and scholars have kind of mind this notion. The idea is that it would have been for Dominicans who were studying in big schools of theology in Europe in the 13th century who were going to be confessors. They would have already had a full course of liberal arts at the university level, which would have included uh, a pretty thorough study of uh, Aristotle and of his philosophical works. Okay, So they're coming to this with a background. Also, many of them will have had uh, time studying uh, scripture in depth and maybe even the textbook of the day, the sentences of Peter Lombard. So they're, they're adepts. They're not mere beginners. They're beginning their study of theology, and he thinks that this is the best way to go about it. And what he did was he got rid of extraneous questions, and he ordered it in such a way that it actually corresponded, he thinks, to the movement of revelation, really, to the movement of God in creation and creation's kind of return to God. So there is a 20th century French Dominican who described the movement of the, the Summa Theologiae as going out from and returning to God. The Latin is exitus, reditus. Okay? So it's the going out from and returning to God. And so the first part basically details God and the going out from God. And then the second and third parts detail how one returns to God. So I've kind of mapped out the Summa here just for you to look at. I wouldn't encourage you to write it down because when it's just so many words, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really apply. So don't worry about writing it down. Um, but this is the shorthand for the prima pars, the prima secundae, which is the first of the second, the secunda secundae, and then the, the tertia pars. St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, he laid down his pens in the middle of the treatise on the sacraments. So he finished the treatise on sacraments in general, then baptism, then confirmation, then Eucharist, and then he got halfway through penance before he had a vision uh, beyond which nothing could be imagined. Um, and then he didn't get to his description of the last things. So one of his friends, one of his um, scribes, I suppose, Reginald of Paperno, took things that he had written elsewhere and then kind of arranged them in such a way as to complete his work. So that's sometimes put into a, a fifth part called the supplement. All right. So basically, when you study theology, you begin with God. Because theology, despite what some people might say... <laughs> is about God. <laughs> because only God saves. Right? Only God saves. And except we consider God, contemplate God, love God, there is no salvation to be had. Right? So advocacy comes in turn. Morality comes in turn. Praxis comes in turn. But you always and everywhere have to begin with God. Because it's His divine life in which we hope to share. So we start there, and then we kind of trace the movement of all things proceeding forth from God. So you have creation, and in there you have a treatment of like the eternity of the world and evil, and then the angels, right, so the highest of creation. And then he does the work of the six days and describes material creation. But effectively what he's getting to is the creation of man, right, because what he's concerned with is confession, right? So he's concerned with reuniting wayward souls back to the God from whence they have come. And then he has some descriptions of divine governance. What I'm going to do in this talk is talk about this part. And so the prologue to this section, St. Thomas says, we've studied God, now let's study his image, namely man. 
Okay, so let's see how God is made manifest in our very members, right? And how it is that we discern and are inspired and illumined and emboldened in such a way that we can actually set about this course towards him. So we start with the end. In the end is my beginning, as T.S. Eliot wrote and repeated in the four quartets, right? So you can't know where you are going. Excuse me, you can't set about a course until you know where you are going. Um, and then he proceeds to human actions, right? It's kind of basic description, and we're going to get to all this. Passions, which are those elements that we share with the beasts, right? Those kind of more appetitive movements of our lives. Habits, virtues, vices, law, and grace. These are kind of interior principles of our moral lives, and then law and grace are exterior principles. That's not to say that they're like exterior as imposed or exterior as foreign or alien or otherwise, you know, not conducive to human salvation, but just that they come from without, okay? So they are two helps given to us by God. And then, when he gets into the specifics of morality, it's fascinating that he doesn't get into case law, you know? What if I'm wearing, um, you know, penny loafers, and it's very wet outside, and I'm very concerned that they get rain sodden, right? And as a result of which, I spend an extra $7 on an Uber to come home rather than giving it to a poor man. Is that a, is that a menial <laughs> sin? Like, he doesn't ask that question, right? When he wants to get into the nitty-gritty of morality, he gets into the virtues, because they're the operative principles of our perfection. They heal us. They purify us. They empower us. They are the very wings on which desire flies home. Okay? So, he goes through the theological virtues, those virtues which have God for their object, and then he gets into the cardinal virtues. These are first enunciated in the pagan tradition, in Plato, in Aristotle, in Cicero, and then they're transposed in a, in a Christian setting, and Father Corbett's going to talk about that. Um, and then he gets into what he calls the gratia gratis date, which are like the charismatic gifts. These would be the gifts described in 1 Corinthians, as opposed to the Isaiah gifts, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which are described um, in yeah, Isaiah 11, 2 and 3. Right? So he'll, he'll describe the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the fruits of the Holy Spirit, the Beatitudes, but those come in the context of this treatise on virtues. And then he talks about states of life. So he talks about contemplative and active lives, and then he talks about what he calls states of perfection, which would be like bishops and religious, okay? And then Christ, right? Because Christ is the very way by which, way, truth, and life. And so he starts first with a kind of uh, consideration of the incarnation, and then he gets into the nitty-gritty of all of the different aspects of human life that Christ has assumed, because what he has not assumed, he has not saved. So he's very particular about vindicating every aspect of humanity that Christ takes to himself. He took a human body, he took a human soul, he took a human mind, a human will, human emotions, etc. He took even the penalties associated with sin, everything but sin. And then he does a kind of uh, narrative Christology, so that the latter half of this treatise is the life of Christ. So it's fascinating. St. Thomas thinks that all of the deeds and sufferings of Christ save. Toda octa et passa Christi salvator, all right, or salventor. So... In this, he, he goes from conception all the way to his seating at the right hand of the Father in glory as a way to illustrate that in all of these things, Christ is not merely indicating or instructing, but he's also saving. He is applying the grace of his life to us through the instrumentality of these acts and sufferings. And then, Christ has yet more instruments ready at hand, right? So, 
The, the greatest instrument of our salvation is his humanity, which isn't to drive a wedge between his divinity and humanity. It's just to speak about it in a peculiar way. All right? But then he uses the instrument of the church, and in the church he uses these separated instruments of the sacraments. Right? And then we consummate the whole thing by returning to God um, in, in the last things. Okay? So what we're going to do in this is just treat en bref, some of the things that form his general moral theology, just to get a lay of the land. And then Professor Jensen and then Father Corbett are going to zoom in on what we've identified as some of the most particular or most um, important things about the good life. What does it mean to live the good life? So, first, beatitude. What is beatitude? Oftentimes, um, this is sometimes just referred to as happiness, okay? And if you're familiar with the philosophy of Aristotle, you've heard it called perhaps eudaimonistic ethics, right? It's, it's ethics that's trained on eudaimonia, which in Greek just means happiness or beatitude. We would think about this as effectively firing on all cylinders, being the very thing which you were made to be. Thomas Merton says the saint becomes himself. So when we talk about beatitude, we talk about human flourishing in a register that we have only anticipated. We've had just faint hints of, right? Perhaps you've been on like a really long hike and you got lost and you ended up hiking like seven miles more than you anticipated. And rather than being upset about it, you're like jazzed beyond compare. It's like that feeling, right? To do something arduous to the hilt and to feel wildly alive. That, in a permanent way, that admits of no diminution. That's what we're talking about with beatitude. So it's important that we begin there, because all things act for an end. We want to start with this principle of finality. And our um, moral lives have this same character. Okay, So the ultimate justification for human action leads to the revelation of the end of life. Which is to say, whenever we do something, we can ask of that action why. Okay, Like... Um, you know, like, why did you go to college uh, to get a degree? You know, because 88% of um, high school graduates go to college in the United States. It's kind of a typical way to gain entry to the workforce. Okay, why do you want to get a job? Well, you know, to make money, to provide for a family. Right, why do you want to provide for a family? Well, because I want to, you know, give them a happy life the way that my parents perhaps, or, you know, I've, I've kind of had experience of a happy life. Well, why do you want a happy life? <laughs> It's like if you're asking that question, you're either like a barbarian or a beast. You know, it's just like it needs no further justification, right? This is the ultimate justification. It answers to the question why in a final sense because we all want to be happy. It's the very thing for which we are made. We want to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. We want to be made through and through. We want to admit of no imperfection to be holy and fearfully made. Okay? So then, what is distinct about our beatitude, about our acting for an end? Well, when you come over here, different creatures come to their end in different ways. So God comes to his end by zero motions. Okay? God exhausts being. There is no coming to be in God. He just is in the utmost. Right? Now, he's not a creature also, so he doesn't fall within that category. Angels, they come to their end by one movement. They come to their end by one movement. They have a kind of primeval choice for or against God, whether they will turn to him and persevere in that choice or whether they will turn to themselves or choose to have him on their own terms and then fall by pride. And they are forever fixed in that choice for all eternity. Material creation, it, it kind of attains to its end blindly. So among animals, we speak about instincts. 
you know, plants just turn their leaves with a kind of photosynthetic gravity towards the sun. They don't have any choice in the matter. We, by comparison, come to our end by many choices, right? We are discursive beings. We are narrative beings. We are made to proceed to the end slowly, slowly, step by step, as the fruit of much suffering, okay? So we can know our end. We have minds with which to know and hearts with which to love. So we can apprehend the end as something to be attained, and then we can choose whether or not to pursue it, and if so, how, and how earnestly. Now, mind you, with respect to our supernatural end, it's God who is the protagonist. It's God who is the initiator, right? So we are responsive to that. We have to consent to and cooperate with his grace in our life, but we are still engaged in the act. We're agents. We're not just passive before his many movements. Rather, we are emboldened to actually get into the ring, right? Because God loves us. Because he doesn't want us to be merely passive recipients. He also wants us to be movers and shakers. He wants us to be deeply implicated in the whole web of providential designs that bring us all back to him in one chorus of exultant praise. Okay? So, St. Thomas, in the Prima Secundae, in question two, it's an awesome article. If you're looking for like one article that you might want to read over the course of this weekend, you can just pull it up on your phones. You can go to dhspriory.org slash Thomas, and that gives you all of St. Thomas's works. dhspriory.org slash Thomas. And you pull up the first part of the second part, the prima secundae, and you pull up question two. Thomas asks the question, what is good in life? Okay, like what is the last end? And he entertains all of these insufficient answers, right? So he says, is it wealth? No. He says, artificial wealth is for natural wealth. That is, we, we accumulate money because we want to get food and drink and access to clothing and shelter, etc. But those things are for the body, and we have a kind of intimation that the body is for something else. So they're not ultimate. And then he entertains a bunch of, a bunch of options. Is it fame? Is it glory? Is it power? Is it pleasure? Is it a good of the body? Is it a good of the soul? And, and ultimately, he gets to the answer that it can only be God alone because he's ruled these things out. For him, it's kind of like an exhaustive dialectic. So he carves up reality into as many parts as he can imagine, and he rules out everything but God. Okay? Because, why? Because our minds are made for what is universally true, and our hearts are made for what is universally good. Which is to say, no one particular concrete thing will ever sate us, regardless of how delicious, how um, utterly delightful, how, whatever, you fill in the great adjective, right? We'll always find ourselves wanting more within like 35 seconds, right? Until such time as we find something that is universally true and universally good, the only thing on which, on whom, we can hang our whole heart's weight. And that, he says, we call God, okay? So, having kind of laid the groundwork with this description of beatitude, he then moves to a description of human action, Okay, so here we want to draw a distinction between a human action and an act of a human. A human action is something that we are actually engaged in, right? So it's something that entails knowledge and consent, whereas an act of a human is just something that we do. We might not necessarily be engaged in it volitionally. So like we breathe without really thinking about it, unless you do think about it, you know? Perhaps you're hyperventilating and you're like, yeah, hey. All right? Um, or like we digest, but we're not like checking in, you know, with our duodenum. You know, it's just like, no, it's just that it happens. 
Good thing, too, right? Um, so those would just be acts of a human, right? Whereas a, a human action is something that we are thinking and choosing. All right? Now, you see on your handouts, if you have them, that you have like 12 stages of a human action. This is something that comes out in later Thomistic commentatorial thought, okay? So St. Thomas lives 12, 1225 to 1274, but holy and smart people read and comment on him up until the present, okay? So if you've heard some of these people's, like Cajetan, Cardinal Cajetan, Tommaso de Vio Cajetan, he was famous for um, some of the disputes that he engaged in during the Protestant Reformation. Also like Francisco de Vitoria, who is the founder of international law, who worked to vindicate the rights of indigenous peoples in the New World, another commenter on, uh, on St. Thomas. He spent his 20-year teaching career at the University of Salamanca just reading and commenting the text of St. Thomas Aquinas. Not a bad way to live your life, okay? Um, more contemporary ones, if you've seen any of these 10 books by Reginald Garrigou Lagrange, he identifies with this tradition. But you'll, you'll recognize other names along the way. Caprilis, John of St. Thomas, and you got like Billuart, Below, Gonet, etc. Okay, so there are lots of guys that are just reading him, digesting him, and representing him for their age. And we are often operating within this tradition. It's a good way to think traditionally because it prevents you from making a lot of foolish mistakes. <laughs> Howlers aplenty. Okay, so uh, Charles Rene Billuart, who lived in the 18th century, he works on St. Thomas's questions 11 through 17, and he comes up with this basic kind of diagram of how acts unfold. All right? Heads up, we don't want to unnecessarily divide thought and choice, all right? So he's not, like, distinguishing these in such a way that they cannot be united. He's just identifying different aspects. Also, this doesn't mean unfolding in the course of time, right? This is a kind of metaphysical priority, not a temporal priority, which is to say when you go from 1 to 12, it doesn't mean, like, 1 takes 1 second, 2 takes 2 and a half seconds, etc. These are things that are sometimes just spontaneous, right? But basically... When you choose, you first make an act with respect to the end, and then with respect to means, and then with respect to execution. So you conceive of something as desirable, right? And then you formulate with respect to it a kind of wish. Like, and sometimes it just ends with a wish. Like you see somebody jump off um, a large cliff in the Sierras wearing a squirrel suit. And they do a gainer, and then they just, like, cruise down the front of that cliff and just, like, bottom out and drip their parachute and land in the Merced River. And you're like, wow, that'd be awesome. And then you never think about it again, <laughs> okay? So, like, your human act just stopped. But let's say it's something a little bit more attainable, right? Um, let's say it's something like, <laughs> like you see a kid leave his front, the front of his house, and then you hear the ice cream truck, and then he goes up and gets, like, something delicious, like one of those things is like a hand with like a gumball in the middle, and you're like, I want one of those, okay? You can proceed further in that act to think like, that's actually attainable for me. Like I have $1.25 in my pocket, right? And I didn't give that up for Lent, right? And so then you formulate an intention, like I intend to move towards this end. And then you start reasoning about means, like how am I how am I going to lay, lay my you know, $1.25 ready at hand? And, and like, how am I going to get out there? Because right now I'm wearing my pajamas. You know, like, that would be indecent if I were to appear publicly in my pajamas. You know, should I change? Or they're footy pajamas, you know, so those kind of count as shoes. You know, but it's like, um, right? So you have to start reasoning about what you're going to do to get there. All right? And so here in this regard, you can kind of take counsel or deliberate, which is to say, like, entertain your options and consent to those options that you think praiseworthy or doable, um, and then you make a judgment of choice and then choose. So like you identify what it is that you're going to be about. And then the 
Final dimension concerns execution. So there's an act of command, like mm, get into the ring. And then use is what he describes as the volitional component. And then the last thing is just the enjoyment thereof. Right? So that's part of action, is to enjoy what it is that you have chosen. So uh, another kind of classic Thomistic way of describing moral acts is with respect to their object, end, and circumstances. Okay? Uh, Professor Jensen and Father Corbett both teach uh, action theory, which you may have heard described in like analytical circles. It means one thing. In Thomistic circles, it means other things. So lots of people who write about it. It's very fascinating to know what it is that constitutes a human act and how do we identify it, how do we um, diagnose how do we, um, you know, like evaluate it? And this can be especially vexed in like biomedical or bioethical issues, right? So it's very important. So these are the key elements for describing and judging a moral action. So the object just describes the type of action. Objectum means like thrown out. It's something out there in the world that, that leaps out of the otherwise neutral fabric of reality and claims my attention. It's the kind of act that I want to do, okay? The end corresponds to the aim of the action. Um, and this may just coincide with the thing itself, but there also may be a further end. Like, I want to give alms so that people notice that I'm giving alms, so that way I, you know, like, get, like, backpats and high fives <laughs> and, like, you're a swell guys, right? Quote. Um, so, but, but it may just be, like, I'm the kind of person that gives alms, right? And it's almost done unthinkingly, you know, because somebody asked. Like, there are people who are pure of heart, and that's just the reason for which. So it doesn't, there doesn't have to be a difference between object and end, all right? And then the last thing is the circumstances. So this is the who, what, when, where, how, to what end, you know, in what habit, etc. So these can condition to act, and they can actually change the object. Like, I want that bow and arrow. Um, right, that's one thing. Uh, I, could, I could tender currency for it, and then it's mine. Or it could be somebody else's and I could appropriate it, and then it's stealing, right? So a circumstance, the fact that it's somebody else's actually changes the nature of the act. So, so circumstances enter more or less into it. But like whether or not it's, um, you know, like my friend Ajay's or my friend Andy's is less important. You know, I'm stealing from somebody, um, and they both can't afford to lose their bow because they subsist on the meat that they hunt, right? So, Okay. <laughs> Now, one, one thing that you often hear is that malum ex quo cumque defectu. That's like a good little Thomistic jingle. Malum ex quo cumque defectu et like bonum ex integra causa. So like bad comes about from whatsoever fault or for whatsoever defect, but, but to be good, everything has to align. It's got to be integral, okay? So if one thing, if the object is bad, the end is bad, or the circumstances are vitiating, then that's a bad action. But if they're all, they're all present in such a way as to constitute a good moral action that, you know, thumbs up, proceed apace. Okay, so that's the first. Beatitude is questions 1 through 5 in the Prima Secundae. Human action in general is questions 6 through 21. And then St. Thomas describes those actions of a human person that we share with the beasts. Okay, and these are questions 22 through 48. Um, and basically... This is awesome. I mean, it's just like so cool. I love this stuff. But a passion describes when an animal is moved by some object of appetite. So we as human persons are just like one big manifold of desire, right? So we're just inclined to certain things by the mere virtue of the fact that we exist, like we want to continue existing, right? So we're inclined to like nutrition and growth and reproduction, okay? But also, on account of the fact that we're animals, we're inclined to further things, right? So we can know and we can desire 
with our senses. We have sense cognition, sense appetite. We can move around, locomotion. And then in light of the fact that we are rational animals, you have, we have yet greater possibilities. So we can know things intellectually and desire them as such. So we have intellect and will. So right now we're talking about sense appetite or sense cognition and sense appetite. So these are things that we share with the beasts. And in this most basic sense, passion comes from patior, which is just like the Latin verb meaning to suffer. So we just suffer some change in our body. So there's something out there in the world that impinges on me. Okay, like I fly to Atlanta and my first thought is, wait a second, S. Truett Cathy was from Atlanta. This is the very home of Chick-fil-A. <laughs> the Dorf House is a mere seven minutes from this airport, right? So like there's something out there in reality, namely the birthplace of Chick-fil-A and all of its extended menu options. And, and, I, and I like sense that and then it changes me interiorly, right? So like, like, like serotonin and dopamine are just released in incredible abundance and I'm just like, go, 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 okay? So that's all we're talking about with respect to sense appetite. Something out there impinges upon me and changes me bodily, right? But there can also be a kind of spiritual resonance of that, all right? And then we can talk about like love in a base sense and love in a more exalted sense, okay? So when we categorize the passions, we identify two discrete powers at work, okay? So there's a, what's called the concupiscible power, which just comes from the Latin word concupiscere, which just means to desire. And then the irascible power, which comes from the word meaning anger, right? Ira, irate. So the concupiscible power is those simple passions of pursuit or avoidance. What are we talking about here? Love. I perceive something as addressed to me. Desire. It's not present and I want it to be present. Joy, pleasure, uh, delectation. It's now present to me and I enjoy it. On the flip side, you've got hatred. There's something out there that is not for me. It represents an imperfection. It's something that would assail me. That begets aversion. I want to avoid it. And if it actually visits itself upon me, then I am sorrowful. Okay? Those are like the simple passions. Next, you have the irascible power. Uh, All right? So... These uh, are like the passions that come about when there is some difficulty. So this would be like hope or despair or daring or fear or anger, right? So like in the case of hope, there's something out there that's delicious. Like I want to go to the Dorf House, right? But I have to go to Hertz first and rent a car, right? And I have to like ward off all of those questions that they ask you. Like, would you like to upgrade? It's like, no! It's like, if you prepay for like a full tank of gas, we can charge you $95 while smiling. It's like, no! You know? So like, I need to hope my way through that experience or I'm going to end up paying like a billion dollars for a rental car when truth be told, it cost me like 32. Okay. Um, So too with like daring, there's some difficulty that I need to confront in order to get to the thing beloved. Okay. And we can go down the line. Um, So you have here a little diagram of the order of the passions. That's just to give you a sense of how you can schematize them. All right, and then some definitions of passions. We've kind of touched on them, so we can gloss that. So now we're moving into habits, and we'll have um, talks that touch on habits and virtues and vices. So a habit, this is a definition taken from a 20th century Jesuit, I think, named George Klubertans. A habit is a stable or permanent quality of the soul that disposes one to act easily, joyfully, and promptly under the influence of intellect and will, making him more or less apt to act well with respect to his end. All right. You can read that again. In short, we are the type of being that is made on the way and not at the end. So he said we are this big, huge, like, open wound of desire, 
And then there is an objective term, there is an object for which we are made that exists in reality. His name is Lord. Okay? But the problem is that our powers are kind of ambivalent. We can be, we can be inclined to many different goods, and there can be a conflict uh, among the different inclinations that we have, right? So because I have this sense appetite, I'm inclined towards Chick-fil-A you know, cookies because they're delicious, right? But I know that sometimes by indulging in Chick-fil-A cookies overly much, I get sleepy, and then my meditation is ruined, right? As a result of which, I find myself just snoozing through Lectio Divina rather than actually persevering in prayer. So, like, there's also higher goods towards which I am ordered, all right? So I need to order these things. I need to make it such that my desires are healed and purified, empowered, emboldened, stabilized, made permanent in such a way that I can choose the good easily, promptly, and joyfully under the influence of intellect, right? Um, And that's just what habits do. They condition our powers to act reliably for what we know and believe is best, right? So that it can perfect us and build us up. It's not about like oppression or repression. It's about training desire for what is truly liberating. Okay. So would you define it as a conditioning of some sort? Yeah, it's a conditioning of some sort. But then we're going to talk about, and Father Corbett's going to talk about um, infusion as something that uh, transcends conditioning. So like when we talk about it in the pagan tradition with Plato and Aristotle and Cicero, there's a sense that it, you know, it's something acquired. By repeated acts, I become the kind of person who chooses well under these circumstances. Okay? Uh, but there's also a sense that some things simply cannot be merited. They are just visited upon us as a grace from on high. So like the theological virtues, right? They're just given to you at baptism. So too, there are infused moral virtues, and we'll talk about that more later. So you can see here the different powers that we described in brief. You've got external senses, which we, you know, the five senses. Uh, Then you've got internal senses. So common sense kind of collates external sense data. Imagination forms an image thereof. Um, Memory retains those images. And then you have what's sometimes called a cogitative power, estimative power, which is like animal reason, right? It's the reason that like a sheep sees a wolf and it's like bad news, right? And then it goes the other direction. Um, And then you have the sense appetites, or excuse me, sense powers. So like you have the appetites and cognition and then the locomotion, which animals have. And then these intellectual powers. And for, for each of them, basically for sense appetites and for intellectual cognition and appetite, we have um, habits that inform and perfect, purify, heal, etc., those powers, okay? So, like, the virtues that inform our kind of base passions, like um, what we call the concupiscible power, would be like temperance, right? So temperance makes us moderate with respect to food, drink, and sexual intercourse. And then with the irascible passions, you know, when we're, like, overcome by fear or need a little bit more, huh, we have fortitude. Uh, The will is perfected by justice, the practical intellect by prudence and art, the speculative intellect by wisdom, by knowledge, um, by understanding, etc. And then you have the theological virtues which insinuate themselves yet deeper. Um, So, habits can either be virtuous or vicious. So we call good habits virtues, bad habits vices. So, uh, for virtue there, I just gave you a couple of basic definitions provided from the tradition. So the most, the most basic one is just that a virtue is a good habit. That is to say that it accords with right reason. So right reason is a standard of our flourishing, right? To choose to think aright uh, and then to act in accord with that is to be virtuous. Uh, Aristotle describes a virtue as what makes a man good and to act well. So it perfects you with respect to your person, you know? It's a kind of 
um, habit of being, as it were, to speak improperly, but it's also operative. So it perfects you in action in such a way that you become the type of person that makes good actions. All right, so it makes a man good and to act well. And St. Augustine, describing here infused virtues in particular, he calls a virtue a good quality of mind by which we live righteously, of which no one can make bad use, which God works in us without us. That last line makes it especially proper to the infused virtues, that God works it in us without us. It's something uh, given as if by a divine breath. All right? So we said that virtues of the speculative intellect, they perfect our minds with respect to intelligible truths, things to be known, all right, to be admired, to be marveled. And then you have virtues of the practical intellect, which perfect the intellect with respect to truths to be done or accomplished. So like prudence is right reason with things to be done. Art is right reason with things to be made or fashioned. Then you have the moral virtues, what we've also called the cardinal virtues, right? So this would be... Most properly speaking, justice, fortitude, and temperance, they perfect the passions and the will. And then theological virtues perfect the uh, intellect and will with respect to their supernatural end as revealed. Okay? So their object is God. So the theological virtues actually terminate in the Godhead. So faith, we believe because God speaks. Hope, we are confident because God is omnipotent and merciful and has promised to afford us a share in eternal life. Charity, we love because God shares with us his own love, whereby we can love in turn, okay? The very grace of the Holy Spirit poured into our hearts, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. All right? Now, the actions of the virtues, um, this is a vexed theological question. There's a huge literature upon it. I'm going to give you a wild simplification, so don't quote me, okay? Um, By acting with the virtues, you act in a human mode. All right, so sometimes they're, they're given in the infused sense, and they bring us into the divine ambiance or atmosphere, but we're still operating in a human mode. That is to say, a mode that's connatural to our action, our ordinary action. Um, now, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, they make us to act by a divine mode, or at least by a mode that exceeds our human mode. What do I mean by that? The best, well, one of the best images comes from John of St. Thomas. He says, when we act by the virtues, it's like we are at sea and we're working at the oars, you know, we're pulling. But when we act by the Holy Spirit, it is as if we hoist a sail and we are carried along, you know, by a power that exceeds our own. Um, So there's a sense, you know, we talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit as a kind of divine breath or instinct or movement. There's a real sense in which God is instigating it. God is the protagonist in a peculiar way. Okay, so like. One of them is counsel. Counsel perfects the, uh, the virtue of prudence. So like you're trying to make a good decision. You're taking counsel with wise people. You're consulting your experience. You're kind of teasing out the implications. You're being circumspect. You're being cautious, etc. But like this is a big ticket item. You know, it's like your life, your one beautiful life. Like what do I do for my vocation? Well, here's the thing. God knows all of the reasons. God knows all the things, okay? Um, and God takes counsel with his own divine wisdom, which is identical with his person, right? So he has access to that reality in its providential unfolding, and by the very gift of the Holy Spirit of counsel, we can participate in the divine mind, right? So we can gain access to his reasons, and they register in a way that's like connatural, that moves us effectively. So you can find yourself drawn to your vocation for a reason that you hadn't previously discerned. That, I think we can say, in certain cases, is a gift of the Holy Spirit at work. 
All right, vice and sin. The Augustinian definition is sin is a word, deed, or desire contrary to the eternal law. And vice is just a settled habit contrary to virtue. Sin is crazy, all right? Um, So uh, Professor Jensen actually just wrote a book called Sin, A Thomistic Psychology, which I recommend to you in that regard, right? So sin always entails a bit of madness, Right? Sin always entails choosing against your good, which if you were asked in you know, kind of like stark terms, like, do you want not your good? You'd be like, ah, no, you know, I want my good. Um, but sometimes not our good comes addressed to us in very seductive raiment. Right? So like, the way that St. Thomas describes it in short is that you have different practical syllogisms on offer. Right? You could be like, this is an instance of murder. Murder is bad. Therefore, I will not prepare, you know, like I will not visit this act on this person. Okay. Or you could be like, you could just start with a completely different set of premises. This person is really annoying. I want them to stop being annoying. I know a way, right? (laughs) So under the influence of passion, perhaps of malice, ignorance, the way that our kind of loves and knowledges have been perverted, we can be made to see reality in different ways. We can actually be inclined to madness. And so this will appear good to us under a certain light or a certain aspect. And that's just what sin is, to be influenced by corrupt habit, the moment, whatever it is, you know, vehement passion, to see reality askew and to choose accordingly. So we always choose something under the aspect of the good. We can never just choose the void, right? We don't like see the inky blackness and jump into it with a kind of melancholy like panache, you know, it's like, (laughs) I will negate my existence with gusto, you know? Um, Even in so doing, you know, whether you be the Joker in the Dark Knight or Friedrich Nietzsche, you do so under the aspect of a good, all right? So then, finally, the last principle is law. You may notice that I've omitted grace. This is a purposeful tease, because uh, next fall's intellectual retreat is going to be about grace and free will. Oh, yeah. So that's an invitation. Okay. So law. Let's talk about law. A lot of people think law, and they associate it with um, constrainment or constriction or an infringement on their autonomy, generally with, like, not a good time, right? But law, as it's described in St. Thomas, is beautiful. It's really awesome. Um, Yeah, I find this treatise especially saving, especially rich. So what is law? St. Thomas has four parts to his definition. A law is a dictate of reason, ordered to the common good, fashioned by one who has charge of the community, and promulgated. Dictate of reason, for the common good, fashioned by one who has charge of the community, and promulgated. Notice here, it is an ordinance of reason. It is not an arbitrary assertion of will. So why is God a lawgiver? Principally because he is wise. Right? Principally because he is wise. Or that's the aspect under which we would describe it. St. Thomas describes four species of law. And this treatise just unfolds that. So the first three questions, 90 through 92, are a general explication of the different aspects of law. And then question 93 is about the eternal law. Question 94 is about the natural law. And the remaining questions are about human law and divine law. And he divides divine law into the Mosaic law, the Old Covenant, and then the Evangelical law, the New Covenant. Okay? So eternal law. This is awesome. Eternal law is just the very idea of the government of things in God, the ruler of the universe. Okay, so think about it this way. God is kind of an artisan of sorts. 
So he creates, he conserves, he governs, he draws all things back to himself and orchestrates his plan of providence such that it never be defeated by any one particular evil, but that all redound to the good and the praise of his glory, right? That plan pre-exists in God notionally. Strictly speaking, it is not distinct from him, for there is no shadow of division in God. But under that aspect, we refer to it as the eternal law, right? The eternal law. Next, the natural law. That eternal law is so potent, it's so powerful, that it registers in each created thing in a way proper to its nature. Okay? So that eternal law is actually impressed in us. Right? He promulgates his law in our very members. And we can participate it principally by virtue of our rational nature. Okay? And we can describe this in a a bunch of different ways. Previously, it was kind of um, common to describe natural law in a highly deductive way. The tendency now is to focus more on inclination. So the question on natural law, question 94, is awesome. A lot of people read it in law classes and they don't read anything else. Don't do that, okay? At least read the whole treatise on law. Then just read the whole Prima Secundae. You see where this is going. Um, Just read the whole Summa, okay? Fairly straightforward. Um, So... When he describes the natural law, he he says the first kind of principle of natural law is very simple. Do good and avoid evil. Now that that doesn't seem to be something from which you can deduce discrete principles in a kind of straightforward way. But it functions at the level of inclination. Okay, well you're saying like, great Father Gregory, this is kind of wild and woolly and wildly unhelpful. Easy. Okay. Because our inclinations are actually specified by the virtues. So what it is that we love is revealed to us. Christ, in the revelation of the Father, reveals also man to man himself. So by the virtuous life, what it is that we are made for, the content, the concrete content of the end, is manifest. Alright? So it's do good and avoid evil, impressed in our rational nature, in such a way that we are inclined to our good, but, presuming that we are undergoing this transformation in grace, it will be progressively made known to us. Okay? So our ends are clarified as we live well, and then we have a better sense of the principles. Um, So, like, he describes a hierarchy of inclinations that are at work. He says there are certain things to which we are inclined in light of the fact that we are existent, that we are substances, namely to preserve our nature, right? And then there are things that we are inclined on account of the fact that we are animals. He says, namely, the procreation and education of children. And then he says, there are certain things to which we are inclined on account of the fact that we are rational animals. He says, to know the truth about God, to live in society, to shun ignorance, and to avoid offending those with whom we live. Now, with a lot of these lists, St. Thomas will kind of like, you know, like, he ends the sentence, he'll like say this, 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 et alia huyus modi, et other things of the sort, <laughs> Right? Um, I have a Dominican convert who says this is the most maddening phrase in St. Thomas. He, he says he often does it after two instances, but it's really hard to know like, what he means after two instances. He's like, yeah, like Dorney Park and Tyrannosaurus Rexes at Alia Hughes Modi. He's like, bah! Like, what do those have in common? You know? um, so sometimes it's hard to extrapolate from his limited lists. But I think those are, he lists all four of those in question uh, 94 in that particular article. And I think those are, those are very helpful. Right? So there are certain things for which we are made, impressed in our nature by our rational participation in the eternal law, okay? which includes to know the truth about God, 
to shun ignorance as a result, to live in society because we're social animals and our ends are only realized in the context of communion, friendship, marriage, family, religious life, etc., right? And to avoid offending those with whom we live, right? You can't be surly and still gain access to those ends. It used to be a common practice in religious life to have penitential prisons, okay? We don't have them anymore, but you get the idea, okay? <laughs> um, so the next one to which he passes is human law, okay? Human law. So we need to tease out the implications of the eternal law for concrete deliverances according to time and place. So it's not written in the stars whether or not you drive on the right side of the road or the left side of the road. I was recently in Ireland. I rented a car, and it was quite an adjustment, not so much driving on the left side of the road because, you know, when you tend to the right, people tend to honk. You're like, oh, thank you. Um, (laughs) But the thing that was most weird was that I was accustomed to have, like, eight inches of car over my left shoulder, and then all of a sudden I had, like, four and a half feet of car. I was like... What do I do with this strange appendage? Um, Okay, so I I put it to you that it's not part of the eternal law whether you drive on the right or on the left. But for public safety, public order, you need to make a determination. And so legislators take counsel, deliberate, and make human law. Okay? The fourth and final is the divine law. So this is the revealed positive law which applies the eternal law regarding the supernatural end. So you have the old law, all right, we associate this especially with Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, where you have like the covenant code, the Levitical code, the Deuteronomical code, all right? But like those 613 laws were all crafted with respect to Israel's life together. And St. Thomas says we can identify three categories of law. There's the moral law, you think here of like the Ten Commandments. Then there's the judicial law, which regulates how they would, you know, govern and render judgment. And then there's a ceremonial law which concerns principally ritual purity and the offering of sacrifice. Okay? So, like, some of these things, or most of these things, don't carry over. Like, you will not boil a heifer in its mother's milk. Right? I don't think any of us have been tempted to do that anytime recently. (laughs) Right? But it's the kind of thing where it, it distinguishes Israel from the ambient Canaanite culture. They are to be distanced from idolatrous practices. And so you have a lot of very specific case laws concerning that. Okay? Now, when Christ comes, he does not um, di- like dismiss or abrogate the law. He fulfills it. So he brings it to fruition. So the moral law is taken up and perfected. It's actually interiorized. And then the ceremonial law and the judicial law are set aside for a more universal reign. Okay, Not abrogated. Fulfilled. Christ himself says not one jot or tittle. Not one iota in one of the Gospels, which is the smallest Greek letter. Just a mere pen slash. Okay, not one iota will pass away, right? So what then is the new law? Is the new law just just more laws? Has Christ just piled on, right? Are we to read the Gospels as a further enumeration of things that we ought not do lest we, you know, incur God's wrath? St. Thomas says no. He says in the principal sense, the new law is the very grace of the Holy Spirit poured into our hearts, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. So in its most fundamental sense, it is something interior. It actually gives us the graced wherewithal to carry out the law. Because the old law did not justify. It did not actually make men good. But the new law does. It transforms the interior life of the spiritual organism in such a way that we can actually become like God. Which is sweet. In a secondary sense, it is written down. So you can associate it especially with like the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said... 
you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that a man who so much as looks at a woman with adultery in his heart, with lust in his heart, has already committed it, right? So Christ is deepening the hold of that law on our life. He's actually teasing out the implications in such a way as to make it yet more plain and yet more gripping, okay? So, on some, he says that the, the purpose of the law is to actually make us good. It's not to constrain us. It's not to bring us up against the sovereign will of an arbitrary hierarch. No. It's actually meant to make us good. To show us what virtue looks like and to conduct us accordingly. 